0: Thank you for joining us for episode two of the Digital Ponds, the podcast where Cyberduck interviews the brightest minds in technology and entrepreneurship to discover what makes them tick. This week, we're joined by Harpal Singh. Harpal is an AI product management consultant working with organizations across the world to build products using emerging technology like AI, machine learning and computer vision. During the chat today, we explore where Harpal sees the AI space developing towards, why every UX and product design project starts with the user, and his journey to creating his book, The Elusive Art and Science of Finding Product Market Fit. Enjoy the episode. So Harpal seeing it's great to, to have you here with us at the Digital Ponds uh, podcast. Um... Obviously, you came uh, highly recommended to me as a, someone that has to be on the show. Um, so I'm really excited to to have you here today and and, and talk to you um, about your 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 really interesting career, your 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 thought leadership, your writings, how you've been working with with different um, startups, in particular the 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 great work you have you've been doing with AI um hear a bit more about your your book as well which is really uh, i've obviously read read it it's really really good um and then a couple of lessons for i guess future product designers so um firstly um it would be great to hear about your you know the main career achievements um that you've had to 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 date and, and and what sort of really stands out now now that you you're obviously a seasoned, decorated professional. Looking back, what, what I guess are the main highlights of your career?
1: Cool. Uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me to the show, Danny. Uh, and thanks for the kind words as well. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll give a brief introduction for the, for the key highlights of the career. So first I'm going to describe uh, what I do is I help um, work with clients of various sizes and shapes build product centric businesses so what that, what that what i mean by that is that the entire business or the entire business unit is uh, revolves around the product uh, and every function revolves around the product and and product itself becomes the way to acquire customers to to scale the business to grow the business uh, so everything around the product so uh, as a result of that my role kind of becomes taking new products to market and that often help, uh, uses emerging technologies like AI computer vision. So that's the element. So my core expertise is still like product management, if you like, but it's just I, I work with clients and, and projects which require these emerging technologies. So there are three core areas that I um, that have kind of emerged based on my uh, skill set, if you like. One is the product strategy uh which i'm helping clients with then there is a product market fit and third is uh, more of a, a, a thing that i've only been doing for last one year is product-led growth so the, which is utilizing product itself to grow uh the how i led up to this thing the um, i i had a career as a ux designer earlier then i had my own startup and then i moved into product so uh, for the last like a decade or so i've been uh doing product leadership roles I think that the the achievements that I'm most proud of, uh, I would say uh, I have been lucky enough to be involved with many startups and and larger businesses. And over my career, there are three companies that I've been involved with where I was part of the core team that managed to go from zero to one. And in this case, it means from zero to 20 million uh, approximately in revenue within like uh, one or two years. One of that got acquired one of that got scaled or merged so these these were my biggest achievements although you work across many startups um, i think uh, the, this is the, something i'm most proud of because it's really hard to go from zero to one
0: wow wow i mean it, it certainly sounds um obviously yeah, one of the things that really appealed to me about your your, your background is, is your um experience in ux and 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 the fact that you were you were you know um, a very senior UX designer in, in lots of different um, businesses. I mean, how, how have those kind of UX skills help your, your career?
1: Yeah, I think uh, in short, the the biggest help, I would say, is uh, understanding of the customer. I think uh, there are a number of uh, uh, people in technology that who do not come from UX background, and they kind of struggle to get there, to empathize with the customers, to understand who they are building for and how the customers think. So they end up designing and building products for themselves. So this, I think having a UX and HCI background really helps with this. Then, uh, so it's almost like you're taking yourself out of the equation. It's all about the end user, it's all about the customer. And secondly, I would say uh, the core part of HCI, which is human-computer interaction, is all about uh, going into psychology of how people interact with technology and the various mediums. So I think, uh, the, the more you understand the basics and how, uh, communication happens on various mediums, like we are talking through video right now, the better your product design will be as a result of that. So I think this is like, a, it created a very strong base for me to mm-hmm. confidently go and take big bets on, on product design.
0: Do you find like, the, obviously with your your UX kind of experience, do you find that it's kind of hard to switch off once you're a UX designer, that you're always thinking about UX no matter what you're doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm not, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> that you are not switching off. I think it's the only thing where sometimes it gets frustrated, which I'm over, over it now, is uh, a, a good UX designer, always has good attention to details right and it is and and the good kind of lean startup method methodology is all about uh getting something rough and raw out there and iterating and getting feedback from customers on that so they are like polar opposites in that way so i think it's about finding the balance like for some of the products you have to kind of go all in and go every fine details but in other cases you have to like put the thing out there, be embarrassed about it, and still kind of uh, get the job done.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's a really interesting uh, time now for, you know, UX products, uh, managers, product designers, UX designers, obviously with this pandemic, it's been um, unprecedented times, right? So um, how, how do you think, you know, business is going to change for your, for your current, you know, and, and future uh, clients, both obviously here in the UK and internationally, because of the this kind of new normal that we're about to, to kind of encounter?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty broad question. <laughs> uh, in, I think, uh, at least from what I have seen uh, while working with the existing clients or new clients, that there is a lot more acceptance of Uh, an adaptation in terms of the new normal and how they work. So uh, I think there was still some sort of a, uh, you know, just like in the emotional journey, you go through like the denial and acceptance and your five stages. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing is happening in terms of how we all work. And of course, Mm -hmm. there are challenges all across the board, whether it's working remotely or whatnot. But I think now what what I'm seeing is there's a lot more open-mindedness in terms of we got to make it work because there is no other way. And uh, that will, which means that we are now going to go back to the way it was. And I think it's almost like a false dichotomy to kind of go and try to achieve that situation. So it's only going to be more of a hybrid working and, and uh, some people are always kind of remote. So I think it is how the effect of that is not only in how we provide service or build products, but also the tools we use, the way we communicate uh, so there is an increase in the tools collaboration tools. there is a, 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 there are new products which allow uh, as an example communication through a short videos of two three minutes each. Uh, so I think there we will see more of these things and ultimately it's going to be good. I think uh, it will also level the playing field across the world, which means that it uh, uh, companies will not hesitate to, uh, attract and hire good talent. If there is a developer from Ukraine or if there is a designer from Spain, I think they will all be mm. kind of uh, they can work together mm. effectively.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, 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 lots of things are are, are going to change, and I, I guess and and kind of users or or end consumers. I mean, do you do you feel that their kind of adaptation or adoption of you know technology is 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 accelerating, and they're becoming kind of more? You know, they have higher standards than what they used to have, or do you feel do you still feel that there's lots of kind of a big polarization between kind of the early adopters and the um, and the kind of laggards? Do you, can you see sort of any changes there?
1: Yeah, I think from a end user perspective, uh, I would classify it as like a market changes or how consumers behave. That change was already happening at a pretty fast pace. Personally, I don't see it drastically changing. Uh, I think what has changed is the environment, and of course it has impact on it, but the the change itself is has always been happening in a way, and we were kind of coming up with new things. Uh, however, if you look at the macro level or the macroeconomic level, because now we're talking about the product or the market, but we're talking about the politics and the, and everything else, I think the the pace of uh, the the change of the pace of change is increasing. So there was change happening, right? But I think the, and that is, uh, that has far wider repercussions because it's going into areas where there was no tech earlier or not enough tech. So I think that kind of thing is happening. So people who were in the technology field or using technology products like the our end users, that pace of change I believe is similar, but the broader uh, society level change is much faster.
0: Exactly, exactly. And um, obviously, one of the things that you're, you're also doing is working, um, you know, with retail, e-commerce, marketing technology companies, um, particularly like, obviously, you, you have um, some really good AI understanding. And, you know, obviously, as a product manager, you, you understand AI and, and work with AI. Um, do you agree that there's like this kind of real AI versus kind of snake oil AI or pseudo AI? um i mean can you see any i guess uses of ai that isn't real ai but it's still called ai if that makes sense um uh,
1: yeah i think uh, the the way i see this is uh, we are uh, not at a time where the the hype the ai hype is dying down in a way uh and it's a good thing because that means that uh, the companies who are actually using AI technologies like machine learning, computer vision, uh, they are standing out and it will, and even that will disappear from the vocabulary. So we don't we don't uh, talk much about the software engineering or the languages itself, we just talk about the problem solution. And although we are still talk right now we're still talking about the AI as a thing, but I think that thing will disappear and it will all become about like uh, problem solution solving. Mm. So this, uh, I think, on its own is happening uh, with this kind of separation of uh, real AI versus pseudo AI, like you mentioned, uh, because when, two, three years ago, when it was at its peak in terms of hype, uh, lots of startups at least were trying to raise funding using and saying that we have AI. I did some uh, uh, due diligence work at that time with uh, with a bunch of VCs and um, this was one of the things to, uh, identify, how can you, um, how can you see like this startup is they really, they have the IP that they claim they have, they're actually using the technology that they're using. Right. And you have, because VCs are meeting so many startups day in and day out, it's, you can't always go into, uh, deep into the product to really kind of do the validation. So there are some of the things that like, you can look at, like, um, basically what type of uh, problem they are solving. As an example, if they are solving a computer vision based problem that relies on identifying an object or a moving object, then you know that this is not going to be easily possible through software engineering and and uh, there's something real there. Whereas if you look into a use case like personalization, which has been around for <laughs> two dec- decades now, right? And they, it that can take many forms. So in that case, you have to look into the the process of the implementation and the training data mm-hmm. being used. Uh, and that can tell you like uh, uh, how they are arriving at the personalization, because you can write a simple if then mm-hmm. statement and say, if someone clicks here, show them there, mm-hmm. that's also personalization, but you mm-hmm. kind of have mm-hmm. to look into the process and implementation, and then training mm-hmm. data itself uh, becomes a big differentiator. Uh, most of the products that I've worked in, and this has been quite a big surprise for me, that unlike software engineering, software products, where what you kind of plan to design and build, there's almost like guaranteed that whatever you are saying that will happen in the real environment. Whereas AI AI, AI products are completely opposite in this regard. So it's like, uh, I know the, the hardest part of building AI products is uh, deploying and productionizing it in the real environment with real data coming in. It's almost like taming the dragon, in my view, <laughs> that it's easy to kind of you can, you can try to tame the dragon while having inside mm-hmm. your own chambers. But once you kind of lose mm-hmm. it and release it, it can cause havoc and it can. So you have to be uh, th- there's a lot more work that is needed to maintain and build uh, AI products in, in mm-hmm. production environment.
0: And obviously things like AI ethics are huge.
1: Mm-hmm. I think. And so this has a. Uh, because of this technical difficulty around uh, maintaining AI products in production, uh, the, there is a there is a straightaway impact on the ethics for that because we don't know how uh, how how it will behave in the real environment always, and there can be so many use cases. Uh, so it's it's a, when we kind of build this product, we accept this as a fact that okay. Uh, we will never be able to kind of tackle the use cases. So the processes that you design are more around how are we going to adapt and react to it. Uh, But of course, you're trying to utilize the like ethics frameworks or uh, strong principles. uh, As an example, when you're looking into the training data, like how is the data source, where it's coming from, what kind of biases can the data have? So these are the, I think this is also where uh, the value of, Uh, product managers and designers shine in a way, because ultimately it's again about solving the problems and understanding the end users and customers. So, uh, and you're utilizing these like ethics frameworks and you are to see or put everything in context of the end users and customers. So we are not even talking about building stuff or uh, analyzing data. We are talking about asking the right questions uh, throughout the process, so we can come up with the with the right solutions at the end.
0: Brilliant. So, in terms of your your, your book, uh, the elusive art and science of finding uh, product and, and and market fit. I mean, there's a number of things that I really like about your book. First of all, you you've um, Published it um, on your on your website in a, in a HTML kind of format, which I think is amazing, and I, I really like your website. I think it's really kind of clear, legible, and I love the fact that you can just kind of scroll through your book really quickly. Um, it, it's very concise, so I'd recommend you know to anyone listening um, have a look at Harpal Singh's um, book. It's it's absolutely fantastic. What one I'm particularly interested is 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 sort of where. And, and how an MVP becomes sort of market validated, and what steps you recommend? Obviously, I know there's a lot in your book, but 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 um, if you if you could just sort of pick an industry and and, and give us some examples of where of where an, an MVP has become market validated, and what sort of steps somebody norm- normally takes to to do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I, I'll just caveat this a bit because the uh, understanding of MVP and the stage of MVP can differ as well. So if we are talking about an early stage idea MVP where you are almost like starting out, then I think how people are generally kind of going about uh, uh, testing various ideas by building as less as possible to stumble upon something uh, that kind of works so they can start the real work after. Because, uh, and if you're talking about the MVP at a slightly later stage where, what I would classify as if you have problem-solution fit, that you have a product already out there, and you if it's a B2B product, you have probably like 10, 15 customers, some paying, some some free uh, uh, customers. Then if on a B2C, you have like a few thousand users, which means that there is something there in the product, it's still an MVB or a version one or a beta, uh, and it's being useful. It's useful for uh, some users, but you still need to figure out uh, where is the opportunity, what is the real product, what's the long-term thing. So I think that part uh, also requires like uh, multiple variations based on MVP. And uh, in terms of like one or two things that applies to almost every startup, one I would say is uh, um, what I classify as a hair on fire problem. (laughs) And this is basically your, the idea here is that you want to build something that a small group of users, very clearly defined group of users absolutely love over a large group of users who like it a little bit. And I think, uh, the, what happens is, and when you are, uh, to attract that type of audience for whom you are really solving the problem, that problem is a hair on fire problem where they will, uh, it, the product works so well for them that they will be uh, willing to uh, give the money to become your advocates, to become your ambassadors right away. So I think that is like one big thing around like uh, focusing on a hair on fire problem for a niche audience. Then uh, within the PMF book, I have something uh, what I call as a PMF flywheel or product market fit flywheel. Uh, w- although you can solve a hair on fire problem Uh, for a niche set of audience really well. That doesn't mean that you're on the path to PMF. So what we have to also look for is look into how we are going to continuously acquire those users uh, and look at is the market big enough for those type of users. And then uh, that kind of becomes a flywheel because uh, it's not just a one-time thing. Hey, we're solving a problem. Let's run ads, let's get some users. That's not how it will work you have to figure out the right distribution channel at the same time almost as finding the right solution for the problems you are solving for that niche audience.
0: Now, that's that's um, fascinating. And obviously one of the things that I like in your book, you, you talk about, um, you can see your, your UX roots in there, where you're talking about user interviews, right? And, and kind of using, um, user interviews to validate um, ideas. Can you tell me a bit more about the importance of, I guess, probably qualitative research and, and interviewing a small amount of users versus more of a quantitative approach as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I would say there is, first of all, no size fits all uh, type of thing here. The the, the way I have been uh, kind of looking into the customer research or the user research within the last few years is how can we democratize the research within the product teams so it's no more about that individual researcher who's trying to go out and do the interviews and gain all that knowledge it's more about how do you build this uh, muscle within the business where they are constantly engaging with their end users and customers and which means that there can be very broad number of use cases or cases where they would have to engage with the with the end users uh, whether they are designing uh, an interface, testing a prototype or uh, validating kind of new ideas through discussions or community building. So there are kind of lots of ways. I think, uh, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I won't be able to kind of give you like, this is when it's good for do qualitative versus quantitative, but it's more around what are the, uh, what are the objectives of the, uh, the research that we're trying to uh, achieve and what, what and the right questions based on those objectives that we need to find the answers to. And we kind of then figure out what's the right methodology for that. Because in some cases, it could be diary studies. In other cases, it could be one-to-one interviews. Uh, something uh, I've seen, uh, like a mistake that happens that lots of teams make is uh, they get really excited about the user interviews and, and uh, gaining information, uh, g- gathering insights from the end, end users but they don't really figure out how what to do with it internally. So how are they going to gather that? How, how is it going to be implemented and utilized? Mm. I think that is almost as important as going out and speaking to users. Uh, slightly newer thing that I have noticed at least with the B2B enterprise uh, businesses is to uh, almost like create a community of their, uh, of their users and prospects. Uh, once they kind of get into the a couple of hundred. So if you are a startup, a B2B startup, uh, y- usually you would you would sell to uh, an executive within a larger business. Uh, and it will be a top-down approach where your sales will first go into kind of selling the benefits there. Uh, earlier, I mentioned about the product-led growth where it is all about focusing on the end user uh, because, first of all, their expectations are uh, getting higher and higher because, of their of the consumer products that they use in their own personal life, so uh, when we focus on the end users, which means that it's no more about those uh, hundred executives that you are talking about uh, who are your who are making your client base because you were selling to them. Now you are suddenly talking about maybe a thousand users who are working in those larger companies, and these startups are utilizing or uh, inviting those end users. Uh, into a community on Slack or or other uh, channels like that so they can engage with each other. And I think what ends up happening is that it's by osmosis uh, through their discussions, uh, you can learn so much and you don't even have to conduct the interview. So it's like a really neat way of... uh, Engaging with their customers, like providing them value and then getting something mm-hmm. in return as well.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost like um, yeah. ethnography, isn't it? To a certain extent where you're, you're, you're just observing conversations.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: No, amazing, amazing. That That's a really fascinating insight. So thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, and, and just finally, um, obviously, with all of your wealth of, of, of knowledge and um your, your your amazing career history what what w- what would you tell kind of i guess your young self if you were to go back you know 15 20 years what what are the three tips that you would give yourself and obviously not just yourself but other other aspiring product designers who were you know either looking to get into kind of ux ai and and, and sort of the future of design
1: cool that's a good question um i recently gave a short talk uh uh, in a, at a university, addressing design students, the graduates. So I have something from there which I can share. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one thing that I have, I would highly emphasize is that uh, don't be shy of the full process. So many times designers get attracted to the field uh, with, the, with the fancy stuff, with prototyping, meeting customers. But your, as a designer, your success is in uh, making the customer successful or your end user successful, not by just creating a fancy product or a fancy website that no one uses. So I think uh, uh, to my younger self, I would have absolutely uh, done a lot more of that earlier. I should have, uh, I wish I had. Then the second thing is uh, uh, it, the more uh, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know and how much more there is to learn. I think it's like a classic imposter syndrome. And uh, one way that to kind of uh, get out of that and is not fall for that next shiny thing, because market is evolving so fast, things are changing so fast, is to keep honing your basics. I think uh, you asked the question around the HCI and UX and how it has helped me. I think uh, I may not remember the exact methodologies, but what I do know is that uh, these are the fundamentals and the basics of design, like, uh, you put uh, how information is grouped together, how uh, people perceive this information, like very simple basics uh, uh, about using devices, about how people behave. That will, I think, that kind of will really help anyone's career. I would say, not just designers. And thinking from from first principles is almost like part of it as well. That you boil down the problems to its core basics and the core fundamental truths, and kind of start from there. I think uh, uh, working within AI field has definitely pushed me to go back to first principles a lot more from what I have noticed. Because it's almost like you're solving societal problems now. You're not just building a a, a website with a CMS and your job is done. So the impact of your work is much broader, which means that at least from what I have seen, uh, rather than getting overwhelmed with all of this uh, information and change happening so fast, you kind of go back to basics and go to the real thing, and that kind of helps. The third thing I would say is simplification or simplifying. Uh, again, I have made this mistake a million times myself, and uh, and with the designers that have managed, we love we love the we are creators by by definition, and we love to create and put things out there. Uh, but we also forget that. Uh, it is again about solving problems and and to keep things simple. And I think uh, it is still for uh, the best designers out there are able to address uh, the needs of the customers in the most simplistic way. And that requires uh, honing your craft, that requires so much extra effort. It's really easy to kind of create designs, create templates, uh, uh, based on uh, what, what exists out there, but really getting back to the basics and simplifying it is still quite hard, I would say.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. So um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess we'll stay in touch. I'll, I'll continue to follow uh, all of your exciting uh, projects and any kind of updates on the book. And um, yeah, we'll chat soon. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Harpal. Thanks
1: a lot for inviting me, Danny. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> if you're interested in hearing more from Harpal, you can find him on Twitter at harpalcpo. That's H A R P A L C P O, or LinkedIn. Harpal CPO and his website, harpalsing.com. You can find CyberDuck on all major social media networks, including Twitter. We're at CyberDuck, all in one word, underscore UK, and Instagram, at CyberDuck UK. Our website is cyber-duck.co.uk. Tune in for next time and see you soon.